This afternoon we come to Genesis 7, which I've entitled The Deluge and Deliverance. And the reason for that is this is part of the continuing section of God's Word dealing with the flood. It begins in Genesis 6, and it continues through Genesis 9. And um, the caption underneath that, um, I would only add one word uh, in, I would add the word continuing obedience to the Lord. And that's important because when we left chapter 6, you may recall the final verse in chapter 6, verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. And that's a recurring theme, and we'll see that echoed in uh, Genesis 7 and Genesis 8, uh, but a continuing point that God um, put upon the heart of Moses under the inspiration of the Spirit to record for us is that Noah was an obedient man. He was obedient because the scripture tells us in Genesis 6, 8, that God gave him favor, that God did a work in his heart. And so he was a righteous man, not because he was righteous in and of himself. He was righteous because God did a work in his heart and created a heart of obedience in him. And so you see a template here in Genesis 6 and Genesis 7, etc., of an obedient man. Now, you'll find a rather disheartening section in Genesis 9 where he was not obedient, but uh, the, the point to keep in mind is that all of us have feet of clay, uh, but the Lord used Noah in, in a remarkably powerful way to preserve humanity and, and certainly to be that human instrumentality through which the Messianic promise of Genesis 3.15 would be fulfilled. Without Noah, there would not have been a Messiah, but the Lord's plans are never frustrated. We know that what he ordains, he accomplishes without exception whatsoever. But in continuing obedience to the Lord, Noah and his family enter the ark with the animals, and God destroys all other human and animal life on earth through the flood. One point that we'll be making toward the end of our time this afternoon is that the flood was universal. There are some and I've only been able to identify a couple of specific instances of those who advocate a regional flood. Uh, fortunately, it's not a particularly widespread point of view that I was able to ascertain, but it's out there. But it's remarkable that anyone could, could come to the perception that the flood would be anything other than universal. But universal flood and universal death, both of those are universal, uh, and both of them are judgments of God upon an unrighteous world. Genesis 7, 1 through 4, these are God's final instructions to, to Noah, and it's immediately prior to the flood. What's interesting, I think it, it, it's a point worth making. Some of you may be familiar with the question that the Puritans asked in the 1600s, what's the chief end of man? And the answer that they gave to that, directed from Scripture, of course, is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And then they ask the question, well, what rule has God given us to direct us in how we may glorify God and enjoy Him? And the answer that they gave was that the, the Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God. And then the third question that they asked was, what do the Scriptures principally teach? And the answer that they gave was the Scriptures teach us what we are to believe concerning God, number one, 
and what duty God requires of man. So, it, and, and that's absolutely true. So what we are to believe concerning God and what God requires of man. And the reason I point that out is that it's essential when we read Scripture, when we look at Scripture, to be frequently, continually asking the questions, what am I learning about God's character here? And consequently, what does God require of me? Because those are integrally related. When we look at the flood, it speaks volumes about God's character. It speaks about the fact that God is a holy, righteous, and just God. He's holy because he is absolutely perfect in his righteousness, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all that he does. Uh, His righteousness is impeccable. Um, He's just uh, because he enforces the holiness requirements in his creation, which means that God judges sin because sin is rebellion against his holy character. And he judges it rightly, and he judges it flawlessly. And that's why we we will see that when we come to the flood. Uh, If if there is anything uh, short of the cross uh, that shows that that God judges sin, uh, it would be the flood. And I say short of the cross because it was at the cross where the sins of God's people were fully satisfied, not, not, praise God, in our own being, but in the person of our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place to satisfy the righteous requirements of a holy God. But if you want to see a a perfect illustration of the judgment of God in anticipation of his second coming, by the way, it's the flood. It's a devastating time. It's, It's universal, and it's absolutely devastating. The word that is used for the flood in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament actually gives rise to the word in our English language, cataclysm. And that's exactly what it is. It's catastrophic. It's, it's cataclysmic. Uh, there, there, there's, that's the only way to possibly describe what took place. Um, but we, we see that God's character is on display uh, because uh, you remember uh, the judgment of God in chapter 6 Uh, was that God saw, in verse 5, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And there are other passages in chapter 6 that speak to that as well. Uh, And so God judges sin. Uh, He he judges it righteously and he judges it fully. But in chapter 7, we see both God's judgment and his deliverance. We see his justice and we see his mercy. Uh, We see his justice in bringing about a blotting out of every living being, man and animal, other than Noah and his immediate family and those clean and unclean animals that were brought specifically at the direction of God into the ark to perpetuate the human race and God's creation. But other than those specific men and women and children and animals, all other life was blotted out without exception. Universal blood, universal death. But God had acted in both judgment and deliverance because man had gone his own way. And uh, I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the the Lamb of God, our sinless substitute, the iniquity of us all. But all of us 
have gone astray. And we've turned aside. And God, in his mercy, laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ the judgment that, that all of us deserve. But man had gone his own way, embracing evil and rebelling against God's rule. And so the Lord gives Noah a very specific direction in verse 4. In seven days, he says, I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And I mentioned earlier, God's assessment of the iniquity of mankind is very clear in Genesis 6, verse 5. Uh, and there are a number of other passages as well. But in, in verse 6 of chapter 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said in, in verse 7 of Genesis 6, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. I am sorry that I have made them. You can only imagine in our human frailty what was being described here when, the, when it says that the Lord was sorry that he had, had made man because in Genesis 1, we have the record that God spoke into existence all that is by the word of his mouth in the space of six days, and all very good. And as God created the earth, as God created the animals, as God created the, the beauties of, of the earth and the sky and the seas and all that he made, and ultimately mankind, in Genesis 1, verse 31, God looked upon all that he had made at the end of six days and said, it's very good. And for God to say, I'm sorry that I made man and I'm going to blot it out entirely with the exception of those that I will preserve speaks of the devastation of his creation. That's not something that happened lightly. That's that I, I can't speak to the emotions of God, but I can only sort of set my mind a bit in, in the right direction and say that when, when the scripture says it grieved God that he had made man, he's looking upon the beauty of his creation and he's seeing a complete devastation of the beauty of what he had made and, and just the, the tarnish of what had taken place in Genesis 3, the effects of sin. And they're all about us, and it continues to our day. So, the, But the Lord provides uh, this direction. Uh, he, he, enter the ark, you and your household, in, in Genesis 7, um, for you alone, you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take of you of every clean animal by sevens, and male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living creature, every living thing that I have made." It's interesting when the Lord directs Noah to take seven pairs, male and female, of the clean animals. He's anticipating the fact that there will be a sacrifice at the end, that, the, that, that Noah has to have the means by which he can offer to God a sacrifice. And it's clear that, that the Lord had made sacrifice a very clear a direction, even from Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Because you will recall in Genesis 3, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so you had Adam and Eve suddenly ashamed, and they'd never been ashamed before. 
they were reluctant to even hear the voice of God, and that had never been the case before, uh, because sin had entered the world. It had changed everything that God had made. And Adam and Eve went about and took fig leaves and crafted for themselves uh, clothing. They were naked, but they had never been ashamed before. But now in their sinfulness, they were ashamed. And the Lord would not accept that. The Lord took an animal, killed the animal, took the skin of the animal, and crafted a robe, so to speak, some type of clothing for Adam and Eve. And you'll recall that with Abel, Abel offered uh, of the firstlings of the flock uh, the best thereof. Uh, and his brother Cain offered uh, some fruit of the ground. And Cain's offering was not deemed to be acceptable before God. Abel's offering was deemed to be acceptable before God. Some people have wondered why that difference exists, and it's clear that Adam and Eve had instructed their children that sacrifice is necessary for God to be appeased, because that's what it took for us to be right before God. We had to be clothed at the expense of another living being. We had to be clothed, and the cost of that was death. There had to be sacrifice. And we know that because Hebrews 11 tells us that Abel's sacrifice was deemed to be a satisfying thing before the face of God. And Cain was given the opportunity, you'll recall, to do something different and to be pleasing before God, and he rejected that. And in his anger towards God, he displaced his anger towards God and murdered his own brother. And so you, But you have this clear direction. It's not specifically recorded for us in verbiage per se, but certainly by way of example, it's absolutely clear that Adam and Eve understood what was required to be covered, and it required death. And Abel understood that, and that's why his sacrifice was deemed to be a righteous sacrifice. And that's why Noah was given the direction to take seven clean pairs of animals and two uh, unclean, because when he would be ultimately emerge from the ark, and you can, it, he had no specificity at that time. He knew it was going to be seven, 40 days and 40 nights, but he didn't have any idea how long he would be afloat in this ark. Uh, but he would discover it would be a little over a year before he would be emerging from the ark. And at that point, we'll see this when we get to a later chapter, the first thing he did was to build an altar before the Lord and to offer a burnt offering before God, a pleasing sacrifice to him. So that's really the essence of why it is that we have these clean and unclean animals uh, being described, in particular seven pairs of clean animals and the like. Richard Phillips makes a, a good comment on verses 2 and 3 about what it is that God was preserving, and it speaks to the, the beauty of God's creation. God created animal life, um, beasts and flying animals and crawling things, etc. And the Lord desired, desired and ultimately provided a way to preserve animal life as well, because that was part of his original creation. The Lord was providing a way, directing a way whereby humanity could be restored and the rest of God's creation could be restored. It was not simply man alone, but God was providing and directing the means by which animal life and the beauty of God's creation would be restored and perpetuated for us to, to enjoy. So we see that uh, in, in the scripture as well. Top of page uh, two, um, 
Again, just more commentary on the clean animals and the animals that are not clean. Um, the distinction will be clarified on the other side of the flood when Noah offers sacrifices to the Lord. To anticipate this need, Noah, uh, God had Noah take extra animals of those that would be offered in sacrifice. And, uh, and in the explanation for that is what uh, I just provided for you, that there were uh, seven pairs, male and female. And just in a, as an aside, and it speaks to our day, God has always created a binary world, male and female. There's no ambiguity. There's no other genders uh, out there. It's always required a male and a female to perpetuate life. It was that way in creation, and it's that way now. So when we begin to see culture saying something other than binary, there's only one person in all of creation that could ultimately perpetuate a lie like that, and that's Satan. Has God said that there's a binary world? No, God has said that there's a binary world. There's no question about that. So we don't need to wrestle with the nature of a binary creation. There's male and female, and it's unequivocal. I'm probably preaching to the choir on that, but, but we need to be aware that even here we see for God to perpetuate his natural creation, he made it very clear that there would be a male and female so that all of animal life and human life could be perpetuated. What's interesting is that in Genesis 7, verses 1 to 16, uh, we have the, the, this discussion about these animals uh, being described in a, a number of, of details. Uh, and uh, so God's handiwork is being preserved. Uh, and we see, and I mentioned this in an earlier message, but the Lord obviously is sovereign over all things. Um, the, he, he directed Noah specifically what to do, and Noah was an obedient servant of the Lord. Uh, but it's very specific in Genesis 6 and Genesis 7 uh, that the Lord directed the animals. Uh, if you wonder how all of these animals found their way to the ark in a relatively compact frame, the time frame, uh, the answer is that Noah was not a particularly adept shepherd the answer is that God directed his creation, specifically the scripture tells us that, that the animals came as they had been commanded by God. So we see God taking all of the steps necessary to perpetuate his creation, including directing those animals to come in pairs, in the appropriate numbers, to the right place, and, and to be sheltered so that at the end of a little over a year, uh, there would be those animals available to perpetuate God's creation. And so we shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, it, it, it's just another instance of God's perfect ways of organizing all things. The top of the next page, it's interesting when in, in verse 4 of chapter 7, uh, the scripture says uh, that the Lord says, For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. If you look at chapter 7, verse 4, and then compare that with chapter 7, verse 10 in your copy of God's Word, what you will see in verse 10 is that it came about after seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. The Lord said there's going to be a flood in seven days, and the flood came in seven days. It wasn't six days. It wasn't eight days. It wasn't two weeks. It was exactly as he had ordained. And if you look at the, the rest of that direction in chapter 7, uh, verse 4, it says, I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And then look at chapter 7, uh, and at 40 days and 40 nights. We'll look at 
chapter 7, verse 12, the rain fell upon the earth for how long? Forty days and forty nights. And, and so, in verse 17, then the flood came upon the earth for forty days. And so the Lord told Noah that I'm going to send rain in seven days, and it's going to continue for 40 days and 40 nights. And in seven exact days it came, and it lasted for exactly 40 days and 40 nights. It it's, reminds me of the creation days, that when we, when we see God describing days, here we have an ordinary use of days. So there's no reason that when we look at Genesis 1, and we see creation days that we should that they should be anything other than the same kind of days that we see in Genesis 7, right? I mean, the only reason that you would have one understanding of a day in Genesis 1 from the understanding of the same word in Genesis 7 is if you're thinking that somehow science is going to embarrass you. Uh, and so you have to somehow hedge on what it means for a creation day to exist. But God's use of words is very precise, and it's not ambiguous. Seven days, uh, rain is going to come. How long did it take God to create the earth and all humanity and animals? Six days, and the seventh day he rested. Ordinary days. It's the same type of day in Genesis 1 and Genesis 7. And, and so that's just an aside. But I think it's important that when we begin to interpret Scripture that we see a continuous use of the same language throughout the Scripture. This is not metaphorical. It's not allegorical. It's not poetic. It's history. And that's the genre of language that is being used here. So then we move in Genesis 7, verses 5 through 9, Noah's obedience. Uh, and I, I love chapter 7, verse 5. What does it say? Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. What, what a, a wonderful statement that we can read. Noah did what God had commanded him. He was a, a, a man who served the Lord. So we see that. And, and, um, and then in chapter 7, verse 10, I made, I made mention of this just a little bit earlier. Uh, the flood begins exactly on the same time frame that the Lord had directed, in seven days that there will be a flood. And in verse 7, verse 10, it came about. After the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. The means by which the flood developed is described for us in verses 11 and 12. There are two aspects to the means by which the flood came about. The fountains of the great deep and the windows of the heaven. And it's, what's interesting is in verse 11, uh, look at the precision that is described here. Uh, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month. And uh, Michael Barrett uh, makes the, a, a very interesting comment. He says, these are exact days that are recorded, and it suggests that Noah is recording the events as a diary. I think that's very plausible. And, and if you wonder how it is that this record took place as Moses is writing it clearly, and again, recall that Moses wrote the entire Pentateuch uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He wrote it during the wilderness wanderings. And it's, it's not Im impossible to, to imagine that there were manuscripts and other things that were available, but certainly the Spirit of God made it abundantly clear to Moses exactly what to write. But there is precision uh, that is being described here. There is a timekeeping uh, aspect to this, and it, it speaks to the, uh, the way in which God organized things and the way in which uh, Noah actually executed things. But then you have these fountains of the deep. Um, some people would describe it, and it's very plausible, 
as underground reservoirs of superheated water uh, which shoot up into the atmosphere. What they're talking about are these tectonic plates or continental plates uh, splitting, and there, I'll get to this in a moment, but uh, there have been discoveries of reservoirs of water uh, in the interior of the Earth, and so if you have the, the continental plates uh, being fractured and superheated water because the core of the Earth is very, very hot, uh, it's, it's very plausible that exactly what's being described is these, the fountains of the great deep, a, the water being jettisoned up into the atmosphere as a result of what's taking place. The earth is literally being torn apart. It's being fractured. That's exactly what's going on. Top of page four. There was rain for 40 days and 40 nights. I made mention of this ex- earlier um, to the point that earlier the, the Lord had said, Uh, that this rain will continue uh, in this uh, fountain of the great deep for 40 days, 40 nights. This is the first stage of the flood. There are three stages of the flood. The the first stage is the 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, Kent Hughes makes uh, a comment. He says, at God's command and at the time he had specified, uh, the waters of the flood came. They came from above. Uh, The windows of the heaven were open. They also came from below as all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. The original creation consisted of water, and now judgment would cause water to cover the earth. For decades, scientists derided the idea of fountains from the great deep supplying the worldwide flood. More recently, however, surprise, surprise, science is being corrected. More recently, reservoirs of water have been discovered under the earth's surface vast enough to replenish the oceans many times over and more than sufficient to cover the earth in a great flood. Were you aware of that? CNN's probably not going to share that information with you. But, but the reality is that it's exactly what God described. And, and we shouldn't be hesitant to accept it exactly as it's being described. So I've got an article for you which you can read in more detail at your convenience from the Institute for Creation Research. And by the way, there are two ministries, and they they are ministries, and they are staffed by very, very capable professionals. Answers in Genesis and the Institution for Creation Research, I will quote both of them, uh, AIG and Institute for Creation Research. Both of them are good, reputable sources. But it it describes this uh, dual dynamic that's that's mentioned for us in verses 11 and 12. Over to page 5, on the very same day, Um, Genesis 7, verse 13, on the the seventh day, exactly as God had ordained it, because the Lord had said, in seven days the flood's coming. So Noah had a timeline, and he knew to take God seriously. He he knew he could not be delaying things. He knew he had to be expeditious about what he was doing. Meanwhile, these animals are streaming into the ark, and, and they're coming exactly as God had directed um, and, and so exactly on the time frame, uh, we have these animals and the, Noah and his family entering the ark on the seventh day. Uh, they're coming in uh, precisely as God had directed. And then we have a remarkable statement in verse 16. Uh, the question is, of course, Noah had built over a period of about 100 years uh, this huge via, uh, vessel that, by the way, is of perfect dimensions. We, we talked about that last time. Um, it is the same dimensions in terms of the length and the width and the height 
that are actually used in seagoing vessels today, the largest seagoing vessels today, same dimensions, exactly. That shouldn't surprise us either. Um, but if you're wondering how it is that Noah goes inside and, and he's, he enters the ark and who seals up the door? Well, God answers, the Lord shut him in. The Lord closed the door, nailed it shut for him. or whatever. However he chose to secure it, you can be assured that it was waterproof, uh, that, it was, that it was secure, uh, that Noah and his wife and his sons and their, their sons' wives and all these animals were absolutely impeccably dry for all this time because God sealed the door. And everything that God does is perfect. So however he sealed it is exactly what was required. It was watertight. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. But the Lord shuts him in and he secures his own. And, and, and actually, it's a picture. When, when God delivers his people, he, he secures them. They don't have to be worried about being lost, right? I'm reminded of John 10. The Lord Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Our, our security in the Lord Jesus Christ is, in a way, pictured by exactly what took place with God shutting the door on the ark for Noah. He took, brought in his people and his animals, and, and, and so you can only stretch the analogy so far, uh, but the Lord brought in his people, and he closed the door, and they were absolutely secure. And so when God preserves his people, he does it in an absolutely faultless fashion. And he does that for us when he secures a place for us in heaven. He does it in such a way that no one can snatch them out of the Lord Jesus' hands or out of the Father's hand uh, either. Well, top of page 6, we have uh, two universals being described here. Uh, first of all, uh, the flood is universal. Uh, and at the end, uh, and I'll try to get to this as quickly as I can, but in the last few pages, there are at least 12 reasons why the flood is universal or was universal. Uh, but we have the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. Uh, the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Noah in, in this vessel? And, and there's water pouring down and, and shooting up into the sky. And they, there's a, a cubit, about 18 or 20 inches of a window at the top. That, and they have some idea of what's going on, I suppose. And just to be beholding this and this, the, 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 the tumult of everything that was going on. It was not a placid environment. It was not peaceful at all. And, and so Noah and his, and his family are in there this whole time. But the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. All the high mountains, everywhere. It doesn't say anything about in a certain region of the earth. It doesn't say mountains in a particular country. It says all the mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. If that doesn't make the flood universal, I can't imagine what ordinary language means. But the water prevailed 15 cubits higher. That would be 15 times a foot and a half, so you, about 20, 22 feet or so, 25 feet, and the mountains were covered. Verse 18, the waters prevailed and increased greatly. Uh, verse 19, the waters prevailed exceedingly. So right in two verses in juxtaposition with each other, you have the waters prevailing greatly and exceedingly. And, and so this is very emphatic language. This is the second phase of the flood. We have the 40 days, and then you have the waters prevailing over all of creation after the initial destruction of the 40 days. 
Uh, in the middle of the, of the page, a quote from Michael Barrett, um, the maximum depth above the highest hills, mountains, was about 22 feet, or half the height of the ark, and that's probably uh, approximately the draft of the ship. The draft would be how deeply the, the, the ship floats in the water. Uh, there can be no local flood as it is repeated that the mountains were covered. That, that seems obvious to everyone who looks at the scripture clearly. Kent Hughes describes, and this is helpful, it's very descriptive. He says the language is evocative of a violent, churning, whirling maelstrom. I've never really thought of it that way, but you can only imagine. He says the repetitions in these brief verses of water five times, increased twice, rose three times, greatly three times in the Hebrew, uh, portray a wild water, water everywhere ride. Uh, and and a, now it concludes by saying, in a massive act of decreation, they were unleashed back into chaos. And that's exactly what was going on. That, that had to be a, a, just an absolutely frightening experience. But the peace of the Lord, I'm sure, reigned in Noah's heart and his wife's heart and upon their children's heart. But so we saw a universal flood, more to be detailed here momentarily. But not only was it a universal flood, but top of page 7, universal death. The reason that it is universal death is because the Lord had earlier said that his assessment of all of creation was that the every intention of the heart of man was only evil all the time. Uh, and uh, then he says in verse 11 of chapter 6, uh, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. Verse 12, God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Verse 13 of chapter 6, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. That's very clear. The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. That couldn't be more clear. And that is exactly what took place. Uh, and so we have a description in chapter 7, in verses 21 to 23. Uh, I'm going to read that, but I'm going to emphasize certain words. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind, of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life died. Then he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. I can't imagine anything more clear than what was just written, that God did exactly what he said he would do. Now, I started our time this afternoon by saying that the scriptures teach us what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. What are you learning about the character of God as you look at this? You're learning that, that God will not countenance evil. God is a holy God. He judges evil. And a time is coming, just like the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, they were marrying and giving and marrying and giving in marriage, carrying on life as if there would be no change, that things would just continue forever. But brothers and sisters, I, I stand on the authority of the Word of God. It's described for us in Second Peter and, and other places. A time is coming when God will again judge the earth, not by water, but by fire. The, the, the time is coming. A day of judgment is coming. And evil will not be allowed to persist. And so we're, we're learning that God is absolutely just, and he will not countenance evil. He judges evil. The reason that we have a sure hope 
is not because we have any intrinsic righteousness in ourselves. We have none. All of our so-called righteous deeds are as filthy rags before a holy God. The reason that we have a sure and certain hope that we will not face the judgment of God as, the, as you see in Genesis 7, as you will see later in the second coming in Revelation, uh, is that we are covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and clothed by his righteousness alone. Other than, apart from that, there is no hope. There is absolutely no hope. There is, in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed to man once to die, and after that comes judgment. So there is no second chance. There is no purgatory. There is no limbo. There is no reincarnation. There's nothing. When, when someone dies outside of Christ, it's perdition, and, and the, the, it's eternal conscious torment. And, and the, the reason that we've been spared is not because we deserve it. Brothers and sisters, we don't deserve it. We're, we're spared because God in his mercy set his love upon us in eternity past, even before we were a, a glint in our mother's eye. And before we were created, God set his saving mercies upon us. And, and Jesus Christ purchased us for himself with his own blood. And he died for us. All whom the Father gave to the Son he died for and he purchased. And so we don't have to worry about that being the subject of judgment. But this shows that God does not countenance evil. He's righteous and he's holy. And, and, and there is no room for discussion on, on the, the, the judgment of God. But the waters prevailed for 150 days. This is the end of the second stage. In, in top of page, or bottom of page 7, one commentator says this, No doubt there were people who felt they had no warning and shook angry and credulous fists at heaven. But the judgment was not a divine whim. Peter reveals to us, 1 Peter 3, that God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, a hundred years. Noah had been warning mankind for over a century. God's judgment is not capricious. It, it is, it's, they, they, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, the, the scripture tells us. For over a hundred years, he was saying, you need to be right with God. You need to turn from your sin. And you can bet that what they did was they mocked him. You're building a boat out here in the middle of dry land. You're crazy as a loon. But they, they did not take seriously the judgment of God any more than today. The time is coming. You will face God. And you, you can't be playing around with the justice of God. That, that, it is absolutely coming. And what do people do? They, they mock. Top of page 8, Francis Schaeffer uh, says this, God's judgment falls against sin, for God is holy. This goes back to what do we learn concerning God. And there are moral absolutes, and we live in a moral universe. If God does not hate and judge sin, then he is not a holy God. There are no moral absolutes, and we do not live in a moral universe. But the whole Bible resounds with this emphasis. God does hate sin, and God does judge sin. That's sobering words, but it's absolutely true. So when we read Scripture, we have to constantly be asking ourselves, what am I to learn about the character of God? And what duty does God require of me? And, and it's, just, it, it's in bright lights uh, what we are learning about the character of God. Well, in conclusion, uh, the Lord shut him in. And it's the most dramatic uh, part of, of the whole chapter. Uh, not just closing the door, uh, but in terms of materially closing the door, but what was taking place, uh, the three points uh, that are made in that top of page eight, uh, pardon me, nine, three observations that uh, Rick Phillips brings out. One, the grace of God. After centuries of ungodliness that was so offensive to his holiness, 
God still left the door of salvation open until the last possible minute. During all the time that Noah had built and preached, not a single person came to the Lord in faith, so that no one outside of Noah's family would escape the flood. Yet the reason was not a lack of mercy on God's part. Rather, all of the rest of mankind perished in their obstinate refusal to yield to their Maker. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ today, and I, I trust that you are, the only reason that you've turned to Christ is not because it was in your disposition internally to do that. None of us seeks after God. There's not a one. The only reason that any of us have sought after God and been found in Him is because God gave us a new heart with the the work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating us and giving us a brand new heart. There is none that seeks after God. Second, the shutting of the door of Noah's ark reminds us that there is a time when the grace of God comes to an end. God bore with man's sin with great forbearance and long-suffering, but his patience came to an end at the time appointed for judgment. Third, finally, God shut the door to Noah's ark personally to secure the salvation of his people. How fearful were the events taking place outside the ark? You can only imagine the, the banging going on on the door, and etc., the destruction of all life on the earth. But inside the ark, God's people were safe. God did not leave it to Noah to ensure that the ark was safely sealed. God sealed him in, just as he had taken it upon himself to secure our salvation. I'm simply going to point out to you uh, something just in the interest of time. Go over to page uh, 11. This is an excerpt from Answers in Genesis um, on the historicity and global scope of the flood. Points 1 through 5 deal with the historicity of the flood. Uh, And then at the bottom of page 11 and continuing on are 12 points that deal with why the flood is global. Go to page 12. The purpose of the flood. The flood was sent to destroy not only sinful man, but also all land animals and birds not in the ark. Birds are mentioned 19 times in Genesis 6 to 9. If, 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 the, if the flood was not global, what could birds have done? They could have flown out of the flood zone. Seems obvious. Number two, the height of the flood. Only a global flood would cover all of the high mountains under the heavens by at least 15 cubits, about 25 feet. The duration of the flood. From the beginning of the flood until the people and animals disembarked was 371 days. The reference to 40 days refers to a continuous torrential rains, but the fountains of the deep did not close and the rains did not stop until the 150th day. Then it took another 221 days for the waters to retreat. No local flood could last that long. The purpose of the ark. God told Noah to take into the ark the birds, land animals, etc., so as to repopulate the earth after the flood. If the flood would have been localized in the Middle East, the the ark would have been totally unnecessary. I love this last comment. As for Noah and his family, they could have gone on a vacation to Egypt or Europe. The ark was only and absolutely essential if the flood was global. I like the sense of humor there, but it's true. Number five, the volume of the ark. Unnecessarily large to save only a few animals, birds, and people from a local flood. Number six, the landing of the ark. It landed in the mountains, plural in Hebrew, of Ararat, 
probably modern-day eastern Turkey, near the top of the highest mountain, somewhere in that region. It took 74 days before any nearby mountains could be seen. No local flood could raise the ark to this altitude. Seven, the rainbow promise. God promised to Noah and his family and the animals that the earth itself would never again, that he would never again send another flood to destroy them. If the flood had been local, then God lied, because since then there have been many local floods that have killed animals and people and destroyed large animals of land. But Noah's flood was global, and God has kept and will keep his promise. Page 13, the post-flood command. God directs the animals and Noah's family to repopulate the earth. The commands were only necessary if it were a global flood, since animals and birds outside the flood zone could easily repopulate the area otherwise. Number nine, repetitious of universal terms. I made, I made mention of this earlier, the all, the every, the under, the heavens, etc. Number ten, a rather technical explanation. You can read this at your leisure, but it describes covering all of the earth. Number eleven, the Hebrew word for flood in Genesis 6 uh, is used a number of times, and it uh, is, is not referring to any flood, but the, the flood a specific flood where God truly showed himself to be the absolute king of all the universe, and it ultimately gives rise to the word cataclysm in the Septuagint. And then lastly, Jesus and Peter, both Jesus in Matthew 24 and Peter in 2 Peter 3, clearly imply that the flood was global since they link the judgment of the flood to the future judgment at the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ will not be regional. The second coming of Christ it will definitely be global in nature. It will be universal in nature. So 12 reasons, and there are others, but you look at the character of God, and, and, and it's inescapable that the flood is uh, a universal flood with universal death exacted upon the earth to purge uh, the world of iniquity.